Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 9. It should be approximately over my left shoulder, just about my ear. You should be able to read it if you have incredibly good eyes. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to their disciples, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up from behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! 
When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. When Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, we do know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. Would your spirit now please use it in our lives for Christ's sake. Amen. I get emails probably now on a weekly basis directed to pastors trying to shape my ministry or influence how I conduct my time in the pulpit. That's part and parcel to my ministry as a pastor. It used to be prior to the arrival of COVID, I got emails every week from different services trying to sell me sermons to preach to you. I know, the bad ones you always have to wonder, don't you? Did he buy it this week? No, I never have. Now I get emails really kind of verging somewhere in between academic interest about the health of our church in the midst of COVID or even going to the far extreme of the doomsdayers saying, chicken little, the sky is falling, the American church is done. I got one this week from a gentleman working on a dissertation and a book and seeking inquiry as to how Christ Ridge is navigating the complexities of of COVID and specifically how, how is our body returning to worship as he begins to examine how evangelicals or those in that kind of vein are handling the, the illness. The interesting thing that he's trying to research really is how do you get your people to come back? How do you get them to come back to the church at all? Because so much of academia right now is saying that, well, the church in America is over. 
And I'm lovingly, constantly in these conversations trying to make the point that, friend, uh, there's a difference between what so much is done in the pulpit and what is done in healthy churches, and it is this. Intellectual factoids about Jesus are not enough to satisfy intellectual factoids, little nuggets of truth, little bits of data are not enough to satisfy the people of God. Instead, we are designed to feast on the robust reality of who Christ is and what He's done specifically for me. It's important that, as Paul would say, we're not just building up knowledge without building up love. That we're not just increasing the amount of bits and bobs of Scripture that we can recall from memory or that we have memorized or that shape how perhaps we speak but never impact our affection. Never alter our soul. I love this portion of Matthew chapter 9 as Matthew begins to address that not just in the generic or even not just for you, he addresses this specifically for himself. I mean, if we were really going to kind of use modern verbiage, which perhaps isn't always quite so accurate, Matthew chapter 9 is his testimony. Matthew chapter 9 is his new member story that you tell to the elders of the church here. It's his explanation as to what Jesus means specifically to him and who Jesus is and how he has changed him. We've seen in the book, chapters 5, 6, and 7, we have Jesus preaching. Chapter 8, we have Jesus doing miracles to show that Jesus actually is who He says He is, that He has all of the power that He claims because He is God Almighty. Chapter 9 here, Matthew says, all of that is important, but it's even more important that you understand it for you. I mean, even kind of if we're going to be crass to say the answer to the question, why does Jesus matter to me? You see, this is actually the moment the American church is realizing is that for so many those that have professed the name of Christ, the answer is he doesn't. A complicated 2020 has been a helpful tool to help people realize why does Jesus matter to me? He doesn't matter to me. And you've taken him away from me, and I haven't missed him because it's not that important. Matthew offers something very different here in chapter 9 as he explains just even from the interesting, just in passing verse 9, and again, I love his humility. Matthew, an incredibly humble guy. I suspect that's because he was a fairly awful human before he got converted. Chapter 9, verse 9, it's noted here, Jesus, as he's passing on the way, he's just walking through, and as he goes through the town, he passes a gentleman sitting at a tax booth. As you know, tax collectors were wretched humans. They were traitors. 
They were betrayers of the worst sort of way. They had left the benefits of their own people and started taxing them on behalf of the others. So rather than being a Jew and looking out for the interests of the Jews, he worked for Rome and taxing the Jews. And the way that he made his income was by inflating his taxes. So if you owed Rome 100 bucks, he could charge you 1,000 bucks make a really good profit. As a result, these people tended to be fairly wealthy and utterly despised. Out of all the people, I mean the guys who literally walk in your, to your wallet and pull out money and that's their existence. You don't have any recourse about it. It's intriguing here that as Jesus is walking through town, he sees this outcast gentleman, the worst of the worst, the kind of person we would be disgusted if they came in here. And Matthew, in his humility, just says, Jesus, just said, follow me, just come along. These would be the words that a rabbi would say to his disciple. That's how the Jews defined discipleship. It meant that you followed a teacher and you learned everything that they taught so that you could replicate it to the best of your ability. And here, this poor, homeless, carpenter, uneducated rabbi says to the wealthy, outcast, despised tax collector, follow me. And Matthew's like, okay, okay. Kind of one of those shocking moments of, wow, that was an unexpected answer. Matthew doesn't tell the story. In fact, actually, much of the story we learn from Luke, Matthew's uh, not really interested in telling him about himself. Uh, In fact, actually, interestingly, he's one of the very few disciples that never speaks anywhere in the Gospels. Um, He only writes. He never actually speaks. Such an interesting gentleman. Uh, he, He takes Jesus home and throws a party. Uh, throws actually a really big party, and you can imagine he invited all of his friends, which were the losers of the town, the kind of people that, again, we would be embarrassed to be around, the kind of people that we would perhaps even be embarrassed to see our Savior hang around, a room that's filled with the despicable lowlifes of society. And in verse 10, Jesus has a party. I love this. We forget how much of his ministry took place at parties. I mean, you think about it. It's the very first thing. He gets invited to a wedding, which was a week-long party, and then so many of the other interchanges that we watch. He's reclining at meal in the middle of a gigantic party. Here, this had to have been a spectacular one, for we have the tax collectors and the sinners and the wretched people sitting around, eating and drinking and having a great shindig with Jesus, and it's such a kind of conglomeration of people that the respectable people come and stand on the outside to watch. And as they do, the Pharisees The conservatives, the type of people we would be excited to be seen with, those that we would love to have as our neighbors, they probably cut their grass really well, not on Saturday, but they cut their grass really well. They probably took really good care of their house. They didn't decrease your property value. Lovely neighbors whisper to each other, why does Jesus eat with such wretched scum? 
Right? This is the equivalent in the Bible of just outside Moss Isley Cantina. Never seen such a wretched hive of villainy and scum anywhere on the earth. And they're saying, why is Jesus here? Out of all the places that he's supposed to be, this is not where we expect a reputable rabbi to be. He's with the scum of the earth. I love that Matthew's writing that as he's writing it about himself. (laughs) He doesn't mince words. He doesn't hide the question. That might have been one of those things I might have been tempted to leave out of my own autobiography. Jesus' answer is spectacular. While partying with the sinners and being judged by the conservatives, he looks at them and says, guys, you have to understand, I came for the sick. I came for those that are a mess. I came for those that are broken. I came for those that are disobeying the law. You have to think about how many multitude of breaches of the Old Testament law were probably taking place at that party. It's one of the very few settings that we're almost certain you got to see Jews and Gentiles eat together because they're the scum of the earth. Might have been the only place you get to see bacon served openly in a Jewish setting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, remember, we're not that far off from demons being cast into pigs, something that would never happen in a Jewish setting. Interestingly, Jesus gives them this staggering response that's completely unexpected, which is to say, look, I came for people that are a mess. I didn't come for people that already have it all together. I didn't come for people who think that they're perfect. I didn't come for people who stand on the outside and judge all of the losers on the inside. That's not who I'm here for. I'm here for those people whose lives is a disaster and they can't do any better because they can't choose the right thing because they're an absolute mess on the inside out. I love contemplating kind of the reality of who Jesus is is and what his ministry looked like in the flesh. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, this would have been one of those interchanges where I suspect the vast majority of us would have been uncomfortable because we would have been on the wrong side. Right? I mean, realistically, we'd most likely be on the wrong side. I mean, let's be candid. What would you do if you found out that your pastor or one of your ruling elders had been, into a, been invited to a party that was feel, filled with prostitutes and drug dealers? And when you got a little insight into the party, you got to see that I was having a great time. You see that tension that we have in our soul? Jesus ends his statement with, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners, to call those that understand the sin in their soul. Why does Jesus matter to me? Friends, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now that if you think you're one of the good people, the answer will be he won't matter to you. You won't care 
because you won't need a Savior. You won't be able to put a paragraph like this together as beautifully as Matthew has done where he acknowledges that he was an absolute mess. Apart from the Lord Jesus, he was a traitor to his own people. He was a traitor to the people of God. He lived a lawless life, violating the law of God. And until Jesus changed him, he had no hope. This is the challenge of preaching in the Bible Belt is that we have a culture that inherently believes it's righteous, struggles to admit that it's a sinner. Why does Jesus matter to me? He forgives me. He restores me. He makes me whole. He changes my life. He gets me out of the pit that I have worked myself into. He redeems me from the wrath that I deserve. He makes every bit of difference. Matthew compiles the rest of the chapters, most like a little bit jumbled out of order for the rest of the part, but puts together kind of conceptually, well, what does that mean? So what's the big deal? It's the whole like, well, if Jesus changed you and if his ministry redefines who you are, so what? What does his ministry look like? Verses 14 through 17, he begins, Matthew begins to explain what the ministry of Jesus looks like. The disciples of John come to him. Now again, John is as good of a man as we ever see. The greatest prophet apart from the Lord Jesus, the most holy man apart from the Lord Jesus. He is the best that humanity has ever had to offer apart from the Lord Jesus and Adam prior to the fall. So these guys, the disciples of John, have been taught as well, as excellently, as brilliantly, and as truthfully as anybody on the planet at this point, apart from the disciples of Jesus. And they come to Jesus and they say, "Uh, Jesus, why do we fast? Oh yeah, by the way, not just us, but why do we and the Pharisees both fast? Why do we do this? And Jesus, interestingly, could have answered them and said, well, there are two fasts hinted out in the Old Testament and given them all sorts of theological answer. And interestingly, he doesn't do that. Rather than taking them through a theological diatribe, which he could have done and done beautifully, he's the smartest man to ever live, he instead explains to them what his ministry feels like. Can the wedding guests be sad when the bride and groom are there. Now, unfortunately, some in the room perhaps have probably been to a wedding where everybody was sad. Don't, add, don't, don't think of that one, right? Think of the happy wedding, the one that everybody is so excited when they see the groom walk in with the stupid look on his face of excitement waiting to see his bride in the back and the, the doors open and the lovely bride comes in and the groom's face gets all melted and gooey and perhaps some tears start coming down because of excitement. And When that's happening, is it possible to be sad? Jesus asks that question in in terms of his ministry, and he's like, look, uh, how is it that you can be so gloomy and so grumpy when my ministry is here? 
The days are going to come when the bridegroom will be taken away. When Jesus is killed, he's going to be murdered not too long after this, a number of years. And they're going to have a reason to fast for a handful of days. And then he'll be raised and that reason goes away again. Jesus, interestingly here, defining the nature of his ministry as one that is filled with joy and gladness. Friends, you have to remember, Jesus was not a grumpy man. Grumpy people don't get invited to parties all the time, and everywhere he went, he was. Grumpy people aren't enjoyable to be with at parties, and everywhere he was. In fact, actually, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, Welsh preacher, makes a great point about this aspect of the ministry of Jesus, and he says in his book, Spiritual Depression, he says, Christian, if you are consistently grumpy, there is a problem with your understanding of who Jesus is or what Jesus has done. There's no excuse for a grumpy Christian. Our Savior isn't grumpy. Neither should you be. That's in a sense what John's disciples are asking. Why is our life filled with, with removal, filled with the negative, filled with difficulty, filled with sadness? And Jesus' answer is, it shouldn't be. Fill it with sorrow over sin, certainly. Be those that mourn, certainly. Be those that are meek and filled with poverty of spirit. But that doesn't mean you cannot be overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he uses two illustrations that I guess some of us in the room might understand. I've never sown a thing well my entire life, so I'm useless on that. But you don't fit unshrunk cloth to an already shrunk piece of cloth because then once you start washing it, everything tears and it goes badly. Weirdly enough, the second one I do actually know about. I had a friend who was a uh, winemaker as a hobby. Actually, Robert and I both had him. And he would make uh, wine in his den all the time. And the process is intriguing because what happens is as it ferments, It produces an immense amount of gas. So whatever you store it in has to be flexible or it explodes. Don't ask me how he learned that question and the bill it cost to get wine out of the subfloor in his house. It's a unique aroma as well. He built a computer for me years later and every time you could turn the computer on it smelled like his house. It had the smell of wine because it's constantly producing An aroma, Jesus making again the same thing. Look, you can't take your sorrowful, down-in-the-mouth, sort of grumpy understanding of a relationship with the Lord. You cannot couple that with a relationship with the Lord Jesus. That mentality is the mentality of one who is unforgiven. That mentality is is one who doesn't have a high priest like Christ One who doesn't have the promise that uh, sins will be forgiven. One that doesn't have the promise that prayers will be answered. One that doesn't have the promise that all blessing is given in Christ Jesus. One that doesn't have the promise of the life to come being secure. It's a misunderstanding of what Jesus has done. And I'll be honest... 
Passages like this are very difficult for me to preach and for us to think about because realistically, again, most of us would be on the wrong side of these conversations. I mean, we would be the ones being like, Jesus, seriously, you want to go talk with these folks? This is how you're going to spend your Friday night. Shouldn't we go talk about the Bible or something? You're going to go hang out with tax collectors. You're going to go hang out with traitors. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Perhaps maybe in this moment, I'm going to be political for just a second. It might be like the most political of us in the room go in and have a huge party with the other candidate after they won. You would think, what are you doing? Why are you there? Why does Jesus matter to me? Well, he forgives, he transforms, he changes, and his ministry is one of joy. And honestly, some of us really need to have an honest look in the mirror and say, I'm not a joyful person, and the reason is not Jesus, it's me. Some of us need to have an honest look in the mirror and say, "Uh, there's something broken inside my soul that I don't have joy. Because friends, joy has absolutely nothing to do with your circumstances. Jesus is homeless and poor. Matthew just walked away from his career to follow a guy who literally just talked to him on the side of the street. He's about to lose all of his friends because things are about to get awkward in just a minute. It's nothing to do with circumstances. It has everything to do with the Savior. And I'm going to be honest, there are times where it's hard for us to believe this where perhaps the circumstances press in on us a little bit too much or we maybe even get a little bit too preoccupied with the failings that we have or failings of uh, what we believe others should give to us, how we're being treated or things like that. We maybe get inside our own heads a little bit. I love how Matthew kind of, again, here gives a reminder not to do that. Here, it's almost like the way he tells it here, it's almost like the party is interrupted. Awkwardly, a synagogue ruler, Jairus, comes in and kneels at the feet of Jesus and says, my daughter's dead, please help. Now, this is where the ante has been raised, so to speak, in the ministry of Jesus. (laughs) We're no longer talking about demonic possession. We're no longer talking about sickness. We're now talking about death. Is Jesus big enough? Is he great enough? to defeat death. And I like how Matthew tells it where he introduces the problem and then doesn't immediately solve it for us. The man comes in and says, please come help with my daughter, she's dead. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll go. And they begin to walk out. And in verse 20, you have what to us is kind of odd and really maybe perhaps not polite for the pulpit, but for the Jews would have been easily the most significant part of this chapter. You have a woman who has a discharge of blood for 12 years. Providentially, I happen to be reading the part of, way up at the top up there, Numbers, Leviticus, on this, my devotions just last week. We forget that every time you had an emission of blood, you were ceremonially unclean. 
and everyone you touched was ceremonially unclean. And I was commenting to my group that I discuss the Bible with, thinking, just how socially awkward is that? That every time a woman's bleeding, she has to be either like, don't touch me, or if they do, she has to say, oh, by the way, you can't go to church today until tomorrow night. Again, think about just how unbearably inconvenient that would be. Mothers, every time you bled, your children couldn't go to church. They couldn't go meet with the Lord. They were unclean, as were you. This woman is a pariah. She is the outcast incarnate. Because everyone she ever touched couldn't go back to worship for a season until they had been cleansed themselves. You know she would have been lonely. She hasn't met with God in a dozen years. I mean, some of us have had a hard go not being able to be in church for a dozen weeks. We spiritually fall apart. It's been over a decade for her. So you can understand her position. It's one of shame, right? Can you imagine that every time? I mean, the whole town knows it at this point. I mean, they have to have been awkward every time you touched her in the, you know, in the shopping center as you walk past in the market. Oh, by the way, you can't go to church tonight. You're unclean. Oh, yeah, by the way, you can't go to temple anymore. You're unclean. Everybody that interacts with her. So she does what people who are ashamed do. She sneaks up behind Jesus and says, maybe this will be enough to make me well. Maybe he doesn't have to know. And so probably you imagine as Jesus is walking by, she kind of gets in the crowd right behind him. You know some of them are like trying to get away from her. And she just quickly kind of grabs at his, his robe. And Jesus does something staggering. Again, you would never have expected. He turns to her and addresses her. The woman who would have been so shame-filled, the town probably didn't talk to her much. And he's so kind. He's so generous. He's so gentle. Take heart, daughter. He, he gives her a term of affection. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, she's fine. And you get to see just this hint at what Jesus does in his ministry as he takes a woman who is unclean, who is filled with shame, whose life is marked by isolation and misery, and he transforms her instantly. He doesn't rebuke her. You realize in doing this, she makes him unclean. He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't shame her. In fact, he's kind to her. From there, he goes to Jairus' house. He arrives, and already the professional mourners are out front. They're making a commotion. They've got you know, little flutes that they're playing to make as much noise. The crowd's weeping and wailing. It's this big kind of uh, show that's being put on. And again, our idea of this um, room temperature Jesus, the milk toast Jesus is destroyed as he walks up and uh, a bit pointedly, perhaps even rudely, go away, throws them all out. 
Once the commotion's gone, he just gets to the girl and again with tenderness grabs her hand, helps her up, and he showcases he's the Lord of life. He's the Lord of life. Nothing is a challenge to him, whether it be our shame, whether it be our guilt, whether it be our bodies, whether it be the lingering contamination of a sin we've done long, long past, whether it be even death itself, none of it is greater than our Lord. Right? Some of us in this room carry guilt with us constantly. The beautiful thing about that is almost all of us, it's not guilt for something we did yesterday. It's guilt for something we did last year or a decade ago or five decades ago and that we've confessed a dozen times over. And we still struggle to believe that Jesus actually forgives. I believe that's why so many of these passages are included to show, look, he's the Lord of life. He conquers death with a word. He's the Lord of health. He cleanses shame with a word. It's so easy for him to heal. There's no limit to his power. Very briefly, we have one last one here before the demoniac, and the two blind men are my favorite. Um, I suspect it's written intentionally to not quite make it abundantly clear if they're serious or not when it starts. You have two blind men who follow, they start following him everywhere, crying aloud. I suspect they're almost, it almost feels like they're trolling him. They're obnoxious. These guys are a problem. They follow Jesus everywhere he goes, and what do they start crying out loud? And this is incredibly important. Have mercy on us, son of David. This is the first messianic proclamation from the mouth of a man other than the Lord Jesus in the scriptures. Now again, I suspect they start with a little bit of a trolling here. I'm not sure exactly how serious they are, but you get the impression it's like Jesus begins to wind his way through Capernaum and is going through the town and everywhere he goes, he has these two blind men behind him basically saying, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, everywhere he goes. And finally Jesus is like, look, this has to stop, guys. Seriously, you need to shut your face. It's got to stop. So he brings them into the house and asks the question, do you believe it? You've been calling me the Messiah for days, maybe weeks at this point. Do you actually believe what you've been saying? And interestingly, what do they say? Absolutely we do. Verse 29, okay, you believe, you're changed, go. He heals them and sends them out with, again, the most just beautiful disobedience ever. Don't tell anybody. You've been, you know, shouting it everywhere you've been for the last number of weeks. Please stop talking about it. And they go out and immediately disobey him by telling everybody who Jesus is. Again, one of those glorious cases where evangelism is evil. Heals a demoniac man. Okay, why why are we doing all of these healings? Again, it, it shows the nature of this ministry of the Lord Jesus that he's Lord over death. He's the Lord even over our shame and our brokenness. He's the Lord even uh, over our character, so he changes us and he transforms us. Until we get even to verses 35 and following, and I'll end just very quickly with these. Verse 36, you get to see really and truly what the Lord Jesus looks like. 
And I'll be honest, out of all of the passages that describe the Lord Christ, this is perhaps one of the ones that means the most to me personally. At this point, he's raised from the dead the daughter of one of the synagogue rulers. That's generated a crowd. He's had two blind men who have been saying for days, perhaps weeks, perhaps months, that he is the Messiah. They won't stop flapping their gums. In verses 32 through 34, he heals a demoniac man so that by 35, you see he's got a crowd that's following him. And then verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, this just is so moving to me. He didn't hate them. He didn't look at them and say, what idiots. True, but that's not what he says. He doesn't look at them and say, can you imagine the amount of sin that is contained in this collection of people? He doesn't say, as Moses says, they're driving me crazy, Lord, kill them all or kill me instead. Instead, he looks at them and has compassion. And he has compassion because as he sees them, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed, they're helpless, they're bothered, they're broken. They are in the process of being destroyed. And friends, it is imperative, and I mean that imperative, it is so important that we cultivate in our own mind the belief that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is filled with all compassion. And by that I mean he has compassion on his people who drive me crazy, and he has compassion on me who drives him crazy. I suspect that many of us struggle with our compassion for each other, honestly, because we stand on the sidelines as the Pharisees, dispensing shame to everyone around us, dispensing judgment to everyone around us, dispensing condemnation, oh Lord, can you believe what those people have done? Can you believe what he said? Can you believe what she thought? Can you believe that person? Instead of saying, can you believe this person? (laughs) Can you believe that he saved Matthew? Out of all of the people on planet earth, Matthew is a terrible person terrible person. God saves him, changes him, uses him to write scripture. Out of all the people on planet earth, he saved me. He didn't have to do that. Thank the Lord he saved me early enough. I didn't get to see what I would have become. I'm sure it would have been far worse than Matthew. I suspect that many of us have forgotten this sense of kind of self-awareness. That Jesus' ministry is so great And the primary proof is that he saves people like us. Now, it's interesting. When you lose that message, 
you lose the final application that Matthew gives. And honestly, it feels like it's just tacked on if you don't understand. Matthew's giving his testimony. Look, Jesus saved me. Look, Jesus changed me. The reason why is because Jesus is powerful, because Jesus is compassionate. Therefore, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Therefore, missions. Therefore, evangelism. Therefore, telling others about our Savior who is so great. And honestly, friends, they don't need a Savior that tells them how great you are. They need a Savior who tells them how great he is. May it be that this portion of the Lord's church here might be captivated by the compassion of our Savior. And that in being captivated with that compassion, we might therefore be captivated with inviting others in and gathering and perfecting the people of God here at Christ Ridge. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. We confess our sins. We confess our judgment of our neighbor. We confess our condemnation of our neighbor. We confess even our willfully turning a blind eye to our own sins. And oh God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit that we might be transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.